right before you started recruiting, what were you doing? So after not passing the bar, I went Mm. on this journey of, okay, Shanae, what can you do with your law degree so you do not feel like you went to law school for no reason? I did what we call doc review. So doc review is uh, pretty much like a, a company or a position where you sit in front of a computer all day and you just review documents. What's the most interesting thing you've maybe seen a candidate negotiate for? Shit. <laughs> Listen, one time I said, what's your salary expectation? I had a candidate ask for at least 725 total comp. And I was like, at least. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, oh gosh. And so he was like, listen, he said straight up. He was like, listen, I worked here before. I work for Google now. I want to come back here. And it makes no sense for me to um, come back, leave my job when I don't have to and come back if I don't get at least a 15% increase. When people say certain numbers, then when you hear 700,000, it makes you think like, what am I doing? Like, what what am I doing in my own negotiating life (laughs) that I am not comfortable with saying I want $200,000 base salary? This episode is being sponsored by Riverside. It's 2023 and it's never too late to record a podcast. And today... I'm going to tell you about one of the best podcasting softwares, if not the best podcasting recording software out there. Meet Riverside. Riverside is one of the best podcasting recording softwares out there. Riverside is so simple to use and so powerful. In order to get a guest into your studio, all you have to do is send them a link. All those other competitors, they record on the web. Well, Riverside alleviates that by recording locally on the machine, avoiding bad video quality and riverside you can set up multiple studios in case you record multiple podcasts and guess what all your recordings are hosted in the cloud not only does riverside do that riverside can transcribe your podcast within minutes and guess what that's a feature called magic clips ai that's perfect for short form video it picks the best moments out of your podcast and also adds magic captions that are accurate based on the AI transcription of your episode. Riverside can also complete your podcast within minutes, records audio in separate tracks, also gives you raw audio, raw MP4, and much, much more. So if you're interested in starting your podcast today, use my link, Textual Talk, to get 15% off your purchase. So how was Afrotech? Afrotech was cool. I loved it. Like we all know that there was a lot of scrutiny around Afrotech and public information. So no surprise there, but I don't have any scrutiny. Like I absolutely loved the experience and for it to be my first time, I don't have anything to compare it to. So I will say that like, I love being able to go around the expo floor. I spent most of my time in the expo floor. It's most of my time understanding like what companies were there, what companies are in existence that I may not know are in existence and being like very intentional about walking past these companies, talking to these people and following the company on LinkedIn. I'm very, very good about that. And so I did that quite a bit. Uh, I, I mean, I loved it. Like I, I didn't have any bad thing to say about it. And I will say this isn't a bad thing, but it's more of like something to note. Everything was expensive. I will say that. Like, I do agree that everything was expensive uh, because that's what the public is saying. Like, I did have to pay for everything, but I also planned to pay for everything. So I didn't expect expect anything to 
be cheap or anything like that. But I think the gratefulness on the other side of that is you get swag from a lot of companies. So I don't know. It was, it, I loved it. I love the camaraderie. I love the events. I love the blackness in Austin. I love how everybody came together. It wasn't no pettiness. Like it wasn't, you jumped in front of me in line. It was, everybody's trying to, uh, was trying to help everybody. So I thought it was really cool and it was really empowering. Yeah. That's what I experienced from my first Afrotech last year. Well, and I think it's different for us that make content. I think it's different for us because you have people that yeah. say, oh, I recognize you from LinkedIn or, or YouTube Yeah, that was like whatever. every 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. You, you run into that. And so it's a, it's a different experience for you. I didn't go there last year looking for a job. I was there actually on behalf of my company. And you're right, everything was expensive. But I also had a company car, so they paid for everything. Yeah. And I think, I think, that like what we experienced is good, but I think for the people who are coming for more, or I'll say like this, I didn't get to come, I didn't get to come this year because our company didn't have a booth. So they were like, okay, well, why are we gonna send here people for? And then my manager wanted me to come, but he was like, okay, we gotta find some justification. So what are they gonna be talking about there? And it they take right. so long to release like their sessions that we couldn't find the sessions. And by that time, the company just said, Hey, we're scaling back on travel in Q4. So yeah. I know I made a tweet saying, hey, I believe Afrotech should partner with like the CompTIAs, Microsoft AWS, and Pearson, and all these people just try to do like some certifications or some other things they can do there. So other companies can, I mean, I think companies want to send their employees there, but it's hard for them mm-hmm. to make a justification if it's yeah. not going to help them enhance their role or do anything that's going to positively affect uh, the role. And so that's the thing. For the most part, I'll tell, I've told people this too, like, or you can just plan for it and just if you want to have like a really good time and network, like that's probably like what the peak is for is like networking. Like I see you met Zaytoven and everybody else. Mm-hmm. I got to come Dude, in on his- That's what I did. No, go ahead. That's what I did. I, I apologize for interjecting. That's what I did. Like I, my company didn't pay for me to go. So, and I knew that I was going on my own dime, which meant I- plan financially the entire year so that I understood that whatever Ubers I was going to be paying for, whatever food I was going to be paying for, the hotel and my flight and anything that I wanted to really do, um, I was okay with, you know, financially being able to do that. So I don't, I don't go into things as like, well, they should do this or they should do that. Actually, it's their event. They can do what they want. Like, I don't, I don't go into stuff like that because, my they should do this is not going to matter if they believe that whatever their organization has to do for it to be as big as it is as successful as it is then they have to do that and if you have to charge a heavy penny then you do now i do on the other hand think like dang like it was expensive especially for people who need a job and who might have used their last to to hopefully find a job while they were there. Uh, I do think that at some point there has to be some type of revisiting of how much the tickets cost. But on the other hand, you have early bird tickets, which I do yeah, believe like that early bird right now. I do, yeah, right, right, right now. I do believe that they listen to the public. They release the early bird tickets, which are very affordable right now. And I'm just like, mm, like based on what you get. Like the like, you get a five day conference. Well, four because the first day is registration. You get a five day conference or four day conference for however much you're paying, but you get all of this access with it. And so, 
I don't know. I got, I have a, I, I'm on the edge for both, but then you also have companies who are paying for scholarships for people to go and all of that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was dope. I only went to one learning lab, which honestly, mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't surprised that I only went to one, but I'm glad the one I did sit in on, it was very valuable because it was talking about relationship building and it was uh, by Shopify, which was really, really cool. And mm. so relationship building is something I talk about all the time. So that was perfect for me. But a friend of mine who was also an influencer was telling me that the learning labs are more for people who are in technical roles. And for me, who's in a non-technical role, I can understand why the learning labs are for more technical people, but it was still beneficial if I would have made it. <laughs> it was still benefit. It would have still been beneficial for me for someone who recruits for technical roles. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, this will probably be the last thing we touch on this topic. I was telling people, it's not the same thing, but I say if they go to like vendor type of conferences, they'll kind of see the difference of what a little bit of what I'm saying. Granted, it's a vendor, but like, for example, I've gotten a chance to go to Splunk Conf in Vegas twice. And mm-hmm. it's uh, much different because they have these people that are the industry that are helping you with do things that's related to your job. You can take different courses. You can go there and get certs. And of course, they also have like the last night, I think they had, because um, I know Afrotech, they always have like the one thing they do have, they bring the stars out to perform. Uh, the last night of Splunk Conf, they had DJ Jazzy Jeff there, and there was like this party, and it was pretty cool, really big, like in the Expo Center. Like Afrotech, actually, listen, Blavity, if y'all ever listen to this, do Afrotech in Vegas one time. <laughs> do Afrotech in Vegas. It may be expensive, but it may be worth it. It'll be worth it because the thing in Vegas, you know, depending on well, really all the, the hotels, you don't have to leave the hotels because a lot of times they're connected to malls. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole reason. I was like, just do it in Vegas. Speak, do it at the uh, Venetian. Do it at the Venetian or the Palazzo. I stay at the Palazzo, so do it there so I can I can come back and get a suite. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> but anyways, guys, welcome back to the Tissual Talk Podcast. I'm your host HD, the number one tech and career podcast out right now. It's episode 108, and we got none other than the recruiting cousin in the building and I don't have my gunshot hey. set up but I would normally put my gunshots right here um, <laughs> this this new Windows computer has really been giving me the blues before we even recorded this I had to switch out capture cards and do everything else just, listen I'm just dedicated to getting y'all this good content and um, for those of y'all that know her she is a superstar especially on LinkedIn like she could share something and I think People just resonate so much with her, and that's why I want to get on the show. It's been a long time coming. And it so is. without further I, ado... I, I, halfway, I think I ghosted him a little bit until somebody reminded me to go go reply to his, to his uh, message. So, yes, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. But I mean, I think, that's, that's, I mean, I think you run into that a lot with podcasts. And some people actually have... I don't have a VA, so I do all... Listen, guys. I'm the person that gets all the guests on the show right now. So I don't have VAs to go reach out to people. I, I think it. it's a little bit more personal if I actually reach out to you versus someone you never talked to before. Yeah. But I want to go ahead and introduce herself to the audience because she's been on a couple of pods. I've kind of taken some notes from some of the things she said. And I had another, <laughs> I had another, as a matter of fact, I added it. I added it to the questions because I was, I said, let me go search and see what she's talked about. And I said, mm, this is a good topic. So I did throw it in yeah. there. But Okay, cool. Without further ado, here's the recruiting cousin. 
Hey, y'all. So my name is Shanae Erker, a.k.a. Recruiter Cousin. Uh, I am from originally from Camden, New Jersey. I went to school at St. Augustine's University in Raleigh, North Carolina, majored in political science, science minor in English, pledged the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, uh, went on to, to law school at North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, graduated in 2015, and... <laughs> To my surprise, I didn't pass the bar. So I um, took the bar, took the North Carolina bar three times. I did not pass it. And so that forced me to pivot into something different. And so from the from that experience, I teach other people how to pivot from one industry to another. I teach job seekers how to stay afloat be frustrated, but keep going and all that stuff. So at my core, I'm a motivational speaker, spoken word artist. And then I put kind of like my spoken word, motivational speaking and marry that with my job, which is recruiting and something I love doing. So that's me. You answered one of my questions already because I didn't know the answer because I was going to ask you about the bar stuff. But briefly, I do want to touch a little bit on Sinead, the artist, because I did find a lot of like articles people have done with you and you had Mm -hmm. like different projects out. Is that, mm-hmm. are you still working on any of that or, or what? Is that on a back burner? I, I wouldn't say it's on a back burner. I would say it's in the middle of my mind. Um, I So anytime I need to release or I've been doing too much with job seeking and I'm starting to feel empty, that's where writing comes in for me and the motivational speaking for me. So I do still write. I recently came back from Jamaica probably about a month ago. So my last poem I wrote about a month ago after taking a very long break of not writing anything. And I'm spiritual. So I felt the Lord telling me if I don't write something, I'm going to lose it. And so... Uh, so I started writing again. Uh, and as I'm going into the holiday season, I'm thinking about writing a little more. I took a break in writing books. So I wrote three books before I turned 30. That was a goal of mine. And so I don't know if my next book is going to be poetry related or if it's going to be job seeking related or if it's going to be both. It will probably be the latter. I'm probably going to incorporate being able to teach people how to job seek from like a like you know information I put in a book with throwing a poem you know in there every here every now and then so I may do that but it's still up in the air I kind of right now I'm writing for me and not writing for anybody else and I actually my next next time I'm doing poetry publicly is in December I got asked to do poetry the other day so I'll be doing poetry in December and I, I feel like when you said the Lord told you if you don't use it you'll lose it. I feel that so much. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't notice about me, but I pretty much like grew up playing the drums. I was a church drummer all the way up until I moved out to Texas. And I have mm-hmm. not played drums so long. However, most musicians, as we tend to do if we're listening to music, we'll probably act like we're playing our instrument to whatever song we do. I do mm-hmm. it all the time. And I'm always like, dang, man, I need a drum set. I had not I haven't played in a while. It's like I'm so busy. And like that's the thing when you have I could, I'm going to say, like, if you're decent in multiple interests, it's like, where do I do everything? But I actually do. Yeah. How do you fit everything in? But I actually do want to, like, get back to playing because it's a release. It's, it's a release. Anything you feel, that's what I like about music or the arts or even a lot of things that I did there, I'll translate it onto the content. Like, yesterday, I, I knew we were going to do this one on a Sunday, so I knew I was going to. I could technically I could get this out by tomorrow if I wanted to, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. 
So I shot a, a solo episode. I always tell my content creators, even though if you're guest-based, sometimes just tap into your audience one-on-one. That's how they just come back mm-hmm. to you and you build that relationship with them. I had stuff I wanted to, you know, get off my chest of talking about my career, job search, like regrets of like taking the jobs because there's more money. Like all those different things that I want to get out, I can get out and I can put it out in that avenue. And that's one of the, I think the beautiful things about content, regardless if it, you know, get a million views or one view is yours. That's what I tell people yeah. all the time when it comes to creating stuff. Yeah, definitely. I hear that. And the next thing I want to ask you uh, very quickly is what made you, I guess, want to be a lawyer? Was it the f- the fact that like growing up, like as black people, we typically grow up and people normally attribute success to being like a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was like that aspect of like the prestige of that, because this is a different question, but I think we noticed to be true. Yeah. People would much rather say I talked to a doctor or a lawyer versus someone who is probably very successful in the other field, but that name that they does does not have the recognition. And I think people sure. are attracted to those titles. Was it that, or was it like an actual love of, okay, I want to be a lawyer because I want to help people that can't help themselves or, you know, some of the things that people get into law for. Yeah, it was the latter for me. Uh, it w- I was never pressured to do anything outside of what I wanted to do. My mom, aunt, my dad, my grandmother was very good with that. So I decided that I wanted to be an attorney. And it's interesting because I don't have a Cinderella story. I decided I wanted to be an attorney because I was watching court TV one day <laughs> and I saw the judge. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a judge. And so I was like, okay, in order for me to be a judge, I got to go to law school and I got to become an attorney first. So my ultimate goal actually was to be the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. I got beat to it, but it's okay. Uh, so I so I wanted to do that and was watching court TV, made that decision. And then I truly asked myself, like, why do you really want to be an attorney? Why do you want to go into the legal field? And my answer to myself was I had some family members who had gone to jail. I had some family members who had also gone to prison. And I knew that they probably either knew or did not know what the law said based on their rights. And so I wanted to be that voice that for the voiceless, essentially that voice that had the information from a close knit type of person where I wanted them to be able to come to me and ask me questions and I can give them the right information versus someone who this is a job for them and they're going to do their best. I would I would have preferred if I was a person in the in the family who was an attorney, then they can go, oh, let me go to my cousin and ask her. Or let me go to my friend and ask her, so on and so forth. Or let me go to my sister, whoever I am to you. I, I would have loved to be that person. And it's interesting because in law school, I was very much that person. So like my aunts and uncles and whoever would call like, hey, Shanae, I'm... I know you in law school have this question. And so that happened a lot. But what I also would also help me was I had a very like traumatic experience that happened in my family some years ago while I was still in law school. And I was able to articulate some of the legal parameters around what was going on. And it helped me to stay calm. Emotionally, it was taxing, but legally it helped me stay calm and confident in knowing what was rightfully ours and what wasn't. 
And so it helped me ask a lot of questions to my mom and aunts and uncles and grandparents of, do y'all have wills? Is it a written will? Is it a holographic will? Is it a non-competitive will? What, like, how are... I was able to ask some questions that I probably wouldn't have been able to ask or know to ask had I not gone to law school. And so now there are certain things that even though you don't pass the bar, the difference between me and a licensed attorney is a test. All of us were trained the same way. So I'm considered a non-licensed attorney because I graduated law school. And so there are certain things now that happen that I can I can legally articulate it and go, oh, that makes sense. Oh, they can't do that. Or yes, they can do that. And so I still, like even my for my own life, there are certain things that I know I can get an attorney for and I'm going to win. And there are certain things that I know I'm going to be like, nah, that's a stretch. I ain't going to win that one. So that's kind of, you know, my journey. Got you. Okay. All I was hearing towards the end was like, oh, so you you basically Mike Ross. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's I like Mike Ross. Honestly, that was my dude. Yeah, I like Mike too. And I just thought about like it's there are other people, like I say, on on YouTube as well, where like either they are practicing law or they're in law school and they'll just take these big cases and they'll just use based on what they know about the law and they'll just break down the cases and people just tune in. I think that's the best, one of the best skills I tell people all the time, a soft skill about knowing your audience is being, mm-hmm. like you said, being able to articulate those legal parameters. It's also mm-hmm. being able to explain them to somebody basically on like a, a child level. Like if you have to explain something to like a a, a three-year-old, if you can make something that yeah. plain, as I understand it, then you got a gift. Yeah. And that's what law school teaches us. It teaches us how to, how to explain it in layman's terms. So it, it's helped me to have conversations that are not so complicated. And it's taught me a lot about life. So it was a really good experience. Perfect. Perfect. So now what I want to get into is right before you started recruiting, what were you doing? Child, everything. <laughs> so I so I was, I didn't even know, I don't even know if I knew that recruiting was a thing. Like, and part of it was because I didn't think about it being a thing. So I, so after not passing the bar, I went on this journey of, okay, Shanae, what can you do with your law degree? So you do not feel like you went to law school for no reason. And so in law school, we are not taught what other fields we can go into. We're taught to practice law and pass the bar and practice law. So I said to myself, well, what can I do to kind of feel like, okay, I can use my law degree and so it won't go in vain. So I did what we call doc review. So doc review is uh, pretty much like a, a company or a position where you sit in front of a computer all day and you just review documents and you go through and you try to figure out like what's relevant for a court case. Is is this in discovery understanding like what the court case is and all of that. And so it was easy money if I'm like, if I'm keeping it a buck, I don't really think I was good at it, but it was still very much easy money. And for a while I was fine with it because it was easy money. And then I realized I'm a little too ambitious to just sit here at a computer and look at a computer all day and just click and review documents all day. So I went on this journey of After doc review, after I no longer am on a project, what happens? And so I was unemployed without contract, without anything for months, probably between like July of 20, 
2019 to, excuse me, 2018 or so to like January of 2019. And so within those months I was doing speaking, I was selling books and driving Lyft and anything that I could do as a hustler to genuinely make money to support my family, then that's what I was doing. And so from there, I went to going into Duke temporary service, which the the perk about that is once you get hired into Duke temporary service, after 30 days of working for Duke temporary service, you can apply to Duke internally anywhere you wanted to. The hard part about it is Duke temporary service, would get, we're getting like 10,000 applications a month. And so I'm just like, okay. So my husband, you know, thankfully worked for Duke. So he passed my resume, literally old school, passed my resume around until it got to one of the recruiters. And then the day before the recruiter was vacating his role, he passed it to another recruiter who was a recruiter over Duke temporary service. And that's how I got in. And so, so my husband was definitely the plug. So I always (laughs) attribute my first like opportunity to him because he very much Terrence is definitely a G when it comes to that, when it comes to supporting his wife. And so I went, I was a secretary for Duke's law school, ironically, with a law degree. Of course, I had people coming up to me saying, here's Shanae Urquhart, JD. How are you here? Yeah. So I had had to answer questions like that. I My second assignment was, what is how I got into recruiting. So in my second assignment, uh, the the recruiting manager was my supervisor, and she as I'm as she's teaching me what I need to do with my job. So my original job was to be a compliance officer, and I had to go into Duke Tip and get rid of all of the old resumes that were more than three years old. So I had to like they had resumes that was like twenty years old. So I had to discard all of them because at that point it's a liability on on the institution. So she came to me one day and she was like, "Do you want to be a recruiter? You want to learn how to recruit?" And I was like, "Yep." I ain't got nothing else to do. Sure. Cause at this point I am over it. I had been looking for a job. I had graduated December, 2015 from law school. I had not been able to pass the bar, find my first salary job. And I went contract to contract. And when the contract was over, I didn't have a job. Like it was frustrating. So that was a four year period. So by the time I got to Danita, she was like, you want to be a recruiter? I said, yep. Cause I'm on my last at this point. At this point, I don't, I'm tired of job seeking. I don't want to do nothing else. And I'm very much beaten down. And so she taught me the lay of the land. She taught me how to recruit. And she taught me how to understand the candidate experience. And so she broke my resume down. She rebuilt it. And within two months of her rebuilding my resume, I had a job, my first full-time role as a full-time recruiter on the healthcare side of Duke. So that's when I pivoted into healthcare and then ultimately tech. Nice, nice. Like, you know, if you would have came and found me back in the day, even though I wasn't doing the, the career stuff back then, too, I'd say, hmm, law, you should go in. Like you was doing compliance work, I would have said, come to the mm-hmm. security side, governance, risk, and compliance. Because mm-hmm. they need a lot of that, especially the people that pay attention to detail, especially with like audit stuff and risk stuff, like just catching stuff. Yeah. And they pay big money. But I'm glad you you really did like most of the heavy lifting for me when it came to the the questions <laughs> that's going to ask you about getting into recruiting. So let's talk about that first gig at Duke and yeah, because I did want to ask. I know you did the first recruiting gig there, and then after that you did talent acquisition. So I want to talk about like the difference between the two as well. 
Yeah. So talent acquisition has, and I don't think people understand it has like talent acquisition itself is the umbrella. You have recruiting, you have sourcing, you may have like an HR business partner in there. Um, talent acquisition as a whole is HR. And I don't think people fully understand that it's just a like a, a branch of HR. And so uh, talent acquisition as a whole is just being able to acquire talent. That's acquisition acquire. So essentially... When I got into recruiting and then under the full umbrella of talent acquisition and understanding how sources and recruiters connect, how sources, recruiters, and directors connect, how sources, recruiters, directors, HR as a whole, whether it's an analyst, a specialist, uh, a business partner, how all of it pretty much connects. And so it's it has a lot of legal aspects to it where I've found very... Very thankful uh, that I was able to land somewhere where I could use this law degree because I was like, I ain't spent all this money for nothing. So I, when I got into talent acquisition, for me, it's a it's a lot of things that that goes into being a team. A recruiter, if you just say being a recruiter, to me, that's an individual. And that can be freelance. That can be someone who is contracted with other companies to land somebody somewhere where for me, I'm a part of a department, which is at a a whole is talent acquisition. And so that's how I see it. Okay. I just thought, I just thought about a weird analogy, but I just thought of recruiters. Nah, it's it's not the same. I was going to, I just looked at recruiters almost being like agents, like how agents are for like athletes and everyone else. Yeah. But then I realized like a lot of times, the agent works for the athlete. So it's like, I don't think it's like just, just the same, but. Well, well, it can be though. It can be though, because the recruiter, the recruiter is working for the candidate. Like that's when people, when people feel like they are, when people feel like they are, they're working with a recruiter all of a sudden because of that agency type of relationship that we can have. It it can seem like we are that particular person's recruiter, just like an agent is that particular person's agent. And so as, as a whole talent acquisition is the entire process of hiring where mm-hmm. it's just the recruiter is just the individual, which is why I said talent acquisition is the department recruiter is the individual. So um, I, I can see where the, recruiting and then agency can go hand in hand, but it's also a matter of the person who the agent or the recruiter is representing. That person has to understand that that recruiter or that agent may not be there, that the um, only person that that recruiter or agent is representing. So I think that's where it's like, it could be misconstrued. Got it. So I wanted to ask you, what did you learn Overall, just a, your your stint at Duke. How what did you learn there? I learned a lot. A lot of what I talk about now, mostly, is what I got from healthcare healthcare recruiting. A lot of people think that just because I work for, <coughs> excuse me, the company I work for, people think that most of the things that I say comes from the company I work for, and it doesn't. So everything that I talk about, every bit of job seeking, every bit of interview prep, all of that comes strictly from healthcare because I schedule all of my interviews. 
I sat in on all of my interviews and I took notes on everything that candidates did and did not do to make them successful. And so I also took all of that and simplified it. We're in tech recruiting. For those of you who think I got all of this stuff from tech recruiting, I hope you're listening because I didn't. With tech recruiting, I've never sat in on any of my interviews. So I don't even know. I don't even know in terms of like sitting in and being a fly on the wall, the lay of the land of the actual interview. I can prep my candidates for topics and all of that. And then based on discussions I'll have with my hiring leaders or the interviewers in my debrief sessions, I can pick up certain things that hiring leaders will say that make candidates stand out. And I can share that just in general information. Um, But most of just without having to talk to my hiring leaders, certain things that I got that I'm able to share with candidates or job seekers came from healthcare. So, and that, that is partly because I think I was more involved in the scheduling and the being in the interview itself in healthcare than I was in tech. Okay. And now that you say that, I actually wish that was a norm to where you guys got to sit in on the interviews. And I'm going to tell you what, I believe, and this is something I experienced from like having my clients record their interviews and listening to them. Some of the people that are interviewing the clients are not good interviewers. So mm-hmm. sometimes you can have a potential employee that could be a great fit, but maybe they not necessarily don't interview well, but maybe they're just really nervous. They don't, the, the interviewer sometimes doesn't know how to welcome them in and kind of ease the tension down and really get to see the real them. And, and they just, of course, mess up the interview. Or you have people who are just disingenuous in the interview and not really ask the things that would pretty much test like how would they actually do in the actual role. And then that makes for a negative experience as well. So I, I actually do a commend. So like your company, I was very high on with their interview process because I went through it last year and I loved it. It was like a it was like two mm-hmm. two companies I went through that had like great panels and everybody was great. But you don't see that consistency throughout all companies. And I think that's why you'll see, and this is this is me. I don't know if you had this feeling right here. At one point in time, this certain company had, it was a role that I interviewed for back in 2019, 2020. I didn't get the role. But I kept on seeing every couple of months that same role kept on coming back open, back open. But I had what I gleaned from that was one, they're bringing in the wrong people or they don't have their stuff together. And that's why it's a revolving door. So it was like two things. But I was mm-hmm. like, that's what happens if your if your process isn't good. I don't think you're gonna get well. You're not gonna get a perfect fit. Everybody's looking for a unicorn, mm-hmm. but you probably missed out on what was closest to it because you wanted to do your interview a certain way and it didn't work right. I don't know if you experienced that from sitting in on interviews or saying like mm, you kind of was a little harsh on them, but they answered your question or or maybe I think this person is good. I think you bugging. Yeah. uh, So there is a gray area when you're not able to sit in on interviews, but the gray area is lifted when you're in the debrief. And so when I can hear, so I hear when I'm in the debrief, I normally don't say anything unless my hiring leader says, Sinead, do you have something to add? And most of the time they do. And so what I can hear most of the time in my debriefs, I can hear I'm listening for the tone of the interviewer. uh, And then I'm comparing that to interview feedback that I'm reading. And if, if I can connect the two, then for me, it's, I would wonder, did you interview that person based off of their skill set, or did you interview them based off of bias? 
And so I can always catch it most of the time I do. And so I, I normally have to correct and this is anything you have to correct bad behavior, but you also have to hold them accountable. And that's what a recruiter's job is, is being able to hold hiring leaders or interviewers accountable for their own bias. And we would, I would hope that as your recruiter, you will hold me to mine as well. And in healthcare, when I was able to sit in on my interviews, you're right. There were a lot of things that you can see in the interview process that needs to be fixed immediately when you're sitting in the interview versus you having to use context clues and then being able to kind of understand how the interview went. But the only reason why I'm able to do that in my debriefs, in my technical debriefs now, is because it prepared me from when I was sitting in interviews in healthcare. And so now I can decipher how the interview went based on what I'm reading. And that's why my company, they, they do a really good job with the process because all of it has to be fair and equitable as best as possible. And so I commend my company for that. In healthcare, some of the things that I would catch, like I could, I would catch the body language of my interviewer. So like I talk about this all the time. There was an interview I sat in on in healthcare and I could visibly see the, so we were on Zoom. I can see the hiring leader, the more the candidate spoke, the more the hiring leader sunk in her chair. The candidate spoke, she kept sinking and she kept sinking. And I'm like, why the hell is she, why does she keep going down like further? So I, I made sure I sat up now, mind you, my camera was off, but I made sure I sat up and I sent her a message on Zoom, a private message. And instead of her doing it subtly, she went like, like looked at the message and like, you know, but I literally said, Hey, you're slouching, sit up. And I didn't say it in a nice way. I like, I meant what I said, what I said, you're slouching, sit up. And so she like grinned and she sat up. And so I was, I've also been able to catch interviewers when I can tell when interviewers are looking at their phones and they're not paying attention. I can tell when they look like they are talking to each other. And so those are the certain things that I've been able to pick up in my interviews that that prepared me for debriefs in technical recruiting. So it helped me understand how to be an advocate like in the moment. So then that way, if I'm not able to sit in on interviews later, that I can be an advocate after the fact. That's dope. That's dope. I'm glad that you you brought that in and hopefully like the audience is listening because, you know, there's so much that people don't understand about recruiting, even me, because I've, I've never recruited before. There's so much people that that what they don't understand about it that they just always feel like they're the victim. I saw, and I meant to share it with you, but I didn't know how it's going to fit it in. And I may share it with you really quick. Matter of fact, where's my phone? I'm going to send it to you on LinkedIn. Is it the, okay, because I saw something on Instagram that was like, what do you think about this? Oh, no, Uh, it's not that. And I can't remember it. It, that was oh, me. Was it your stories? Yeah, okay. that's from YouTube. Yeah, I asked them, could they give me some context? Because I, I answered that question back, but I also want a context to see, like, okay, what are you like talking about? Okay, uh, I'm going to share it. Let me take it. All right, so what it was was the dude t- applied for a job and tagged Apex Systems in and it was talking about, please contact me on Please contact me on why I was rejected with no interview by the recruiter. I feel like I was qualified. That's why I applied. He deleted the post, but I remember what it said. And it just was hilarious because, well, when I looked, when I went to his profile, I said, okay, I guess he got experience. But then as you go to him talking, he's like, oh, he don't have that much experience. 
and he probably just wasn't a good fit. But it was just hilarious to me that he tagged Apex and said, why would y'all reject me just from, and not even talk to me? I was like, what's, what is going on with people? I was like, I still get rejected for stuff all the time, and I got more experience than most people. I was like, here's what it is. how bold people are, because we get it too. I, I've gotten those, I've gotten those emails like, why you reject me and you ain't even call me for a recruiter screen? I've gotten that. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh-huh. That that's great. We're we're gonna we'll get into some of that too, because that's why I had like a take. It was like like the the bad part of recruiting that people don't don't talk about, like the things that you guys deal with sometimes. So yeah, like real quick, real quick. So when I first started in my current company, I got I so there was a position that was posted, and it was cyber threat analyst and cyber threat hunter. So of course they sound the same, and so. The, the the candidate was disqualified from the cyber threat analyst role, but he wasn't disqualified from the hunter role, which was mine. Mm-hmm. And so he sent me an email just randomly. It was like, he started with, so let me get this straight. And I was like, what? <laughs> like I had to remember, Shanae, you on your work email. Like I had to like, I had to come back, like hold up. And so he was like, I would appreciate if, you could tell me why I was disqualified for this role, but I haven't even talked to the hiring leader yet. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so he came back and realized he, he inadvertently sent that email, not realizing that the analyst role wasn't mine. So he wasn't disqualified from my role. He was disqualified from the other one. And he immediately like, when he realized it, it was too late. Cause I had already read the email. And so I responded and I said, let me tell you something. I said, Shanae said it's nice because this is written. <laughs> so you don't get fired. I said, I understand your concern and I will speak to the hiring manager. I said, he could either be in meetings. He could have been pulled away. It could have been a, an array of things that makes him kind of pause on the hiring process. I said, but before I do that, reread the tone of this email before you ever email me like this again. And before... Anybody can tell my manager what I said. I w- I went directly to my manager and told her exactly what I said. Because you're never going to be able to tell on me. I'll tell you exactly what I said. Because for me, if one of my core values of my company is respect, I'm going to demand it. And so if you disrespect me, I'm not going to come at you, but I'm going to ask you to not use that tone with me if you need me to help you. And so there are certain things that now there have there were recruiters who disagreed with me, like, you know, you should just be able to take it. And I and my counter to that is if my if I am operating under a company that a core value is respect, you can't tell me just take it because it's disrespectful. So. So, yeah, we deal with a lot of a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't know. Right. And I would say. If you deal with that, that's setting a precedent of people can always come at you a certain way. And so you got to yep. it in the bud. And I also sense yep. like you might have been a teacher in a past life. <laughs> that it's tone with that. me and talking I, to the kids and making yeah, them put their heads down. <laughs> it's not that. It's I Disrespect burns my biscuits. Like I can't stand it. And so for me... If, especially when I know I'm going to respect you. And then you have to add, like, I'm a black woman. I got natural hair. There's a certain level of respect I got to demand because I know I'm going to be in rooms mm-hmm. where people are going to look at me and all of a sudden they think I, I don't know nothing because of how I look. Like, it, we deal with it all the time. And so 
I'm already aware of that. And I, I just teach people how to treat me. I was disrespected too much in my life in general. So I was just like, yeah, once I reach a, le- a certain age and a certain level of, of balls, so to speak, that I have, um, I'm not going to walk away like I used to with carrying the weight of the burden of how people make me feel. So it's, we're going to respect each other or we're just not going to be in conversation. Got it. Got it. And this question, I know I want to slip this one in here too, because you pivoted from doing the document review to getting into pretty much recruiting. Mm -hmm. And that was way about six, seven years ago, right? This was, I'm going on five years. So I'm at like four and a half. Okay. We're just going to say five years. So it's like five years ago. (laughs) So five, so five years ago, what were or sadly's like going into entry level recruiting back then? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the question normally that I get to to your point is like, how did how, what was the thing that made you get into recruiting? Like, I understand you were a temp recruiter, but what was the thing that set you apart? Like, what what was on the job description inside of the minimum qualifications? What was the words themselves? And so for me. The pivot was on my job description. It said that there were two very basic minimum qualifications and it pretty much said a bachelor's degree and one year of professional experience. And which means you could have been a cashier with a bachelor's degree and become a recruiter in this role. And I was like, okay. So I just apply. And I think what helped was I was internal already. And I was also in my manager at the time who was Danita, the manager I was going under, she used to work for that manager. So anyone coming from up under Danita, that manager knew, oh, they got to be good. And that honestly taught me that whole, like deliver your, your, you know, your work will speak for itself and the work will give you reputation and all of that. Knowing that I was coming from up under Janita and that hiring leader, Michelle, that Michelle actually trusted because I was coming under from under Janita, she was going to hire me. That set the precedent for me of recruiter cousin, whatever you say, you have to deliver in what you say so that anyone who is coming from up under you, just because it's coming from you and you deliver and you mean what you say, meaning you it's factual, you can data and all of that, then you have to exemplify that. And so that's kind of like how I was able to get into recruiting. Yeah. That reminds me of one of the jobs I got really strictly off of who my manager was because my manager used to talk about me to this other person who was, uh, I think she might've been her contemporary. I think they both were managers or directors at the time of the company, but she knew where I came from because she would talk about me. So like, oh, yeah, I know what contract you're on. You work under Ashley, right? And um, needless to say, I, I got the job pretty easy just because of like what you said. So I definitely agree with that. It's like the term that we use about networking. It's like not who you know, but who knows you. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you right now, what is the best thing for you right now that you like about being a recruiter? So I get, I get in trouble about this a lot and it's not a bad trouble. It's more like feedback I get from my current manager. So my current manager always tells me to be careful about 
how late I'm working or how late I'm online because she doesn't want to give, she want, doesn't want me to give off the impression to candidates that that is what our culture at our company is. And so I took that feedback and I said, okay, if I decide to work late, I'm going to tell a candidate, this is my choice. So the best part about being able to being able to be a recruiter right now in the moment is the hustle mentality of being able to land a candidate and knowing that you prioritize a candidate. And so what I mean by that is I just had an offer accept maybe today is Sunday. So I got it on like Thursday or Friday, one of the two. And this candidate is he lives about an hour and a half away from me. So he's also in North Carolina. And what what's dope is I get a chance to I've I've made two offers in two different fiscal years to North Carolina residents. Three, I'm sorry, three offers. And it's it's always a joy to be able to give them to North Carolina residents because most of my roles are set in Redmond, Washington. So when I find a candidate that the hiring leader is very much open to them being fully remote, they don't have to relocate and they don't care where they work and it's in North Carolina, I get hyped. Like, I get <laughs> like, oh, I live in North Carolina too. Hey. So the best part is being able to show a candidate that they are a priority. So after, so this is something that I say all the time, after you interview with a, a, a company and we debrief and then the hiring leader decides that they're going to go with you as a candidate, at that point, you have shown that you are the right person for the role. So for me as a recruiter, it's my job to land you now. So now I got to work to show you that the company cares about who you are, your flexibility, what can we do to land you because we're going to do our best. And so I had a candidate the other day, he was a consultant. And so he was coming out of full-time consultancy into big tech. And so I was like making myself available at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And he was very surprised. And he was like, ain't it like, you still working? And I'm like, well, I kind of just logged back on just to, cause, cause I understand you're busy throughout the day. I'm not doing anything. I'm not even in the bed yet. So it doesn't, I don't mind just hopping back on if you have any questions. And so he made, he like, he felt very much like a priority and realized like they really want me. So the favorite part of my job right now is showing candidates exactly that. And then being able to see their lives transform when I make them that offer and be able to show them where their money is going and get them to understand where their money is going. That's dope. And as a person who, like I said, raved about y'all's process and then another process. I, I, I feel like every other podcast episode, I'm talking about how great Yahoo's uh, process was, specifically the recruiter that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Recruiters should take note. Like, if they do, they know ha- they have qualified candidates they're working with. Like, making them feel like a priority and feedback or just a, just a message back, an update saying, hey, I haven't heard anything back there. I'll, let, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Even something small as like that goes a long way because sometimes... I do that all the time. Right, because sometimes we're not... I'm not trying to actually... I just want to know, hey, did you hear anything? Because, you know, we're all interviewing with different people, but I really like you guys, so I want to make sure, like, did I miss anything or, or what's going on? But when, when yeah. recruiters act like that, it really speaks to the type of recruiters and people that you guys have at the company, which makes us more inclined to actually choose you guys over other people because of, like you said, the prioritization. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that that you're one of the few that's out there doing that, really giving people those good experiences. Cause typically 
that translate over into like a good onboarding process and have yeah. a good company and run it to good people. So that's that's great. Yeah. And yeah, so and I, what's interesting no, what's interesting about that is that candidate, I made myself available at 1030 at night because he was just busy. Uh, and then he didn't respond. After that, he didn't respond to like four o'clock in the morning. But I just so happened to wake up and I grabbed my phone and I just like, he don't know, but I was on my phone in the bed, but he, I just like, Hey, real quick. Cause I wanted to catch him. So I was like, Hey, real quick, you know, we can meet at eight 30. And he was surprised that I responded at four, four 30 in the morning. And I only did that because my hire me, my hiring leader, he, my hiring leader wants to land this candidate in my mind. We about to go into Thanksgiving, the, yeah. hi, the process of the background check and all of that can take some time knowing it's the holiday season. And I was like, it's I'm awake. And so in my mind, I'm like, I don't care what time it is. If like, I need to be able to land you and it's not taken away from my life, but it's going to add to my professional life, genuinely not drilling anything out of my personal life. Then I don't see an issue. And I don't see an issue with like, same thing with Afrotech. I was in Afrotech at Afrotech, not representing my company, but I was also on PTO. And I knew that there was going to be a candidate that while I was out of office, my hiring leader was going to debrief and then they were going to choose a candidate. They debriefed, they chose the candidate that I knew they would choose. So I stepped out of Afrotech real quick, called her and made her an offer. And I was like, hey, just let you know, I'm on vacation. I understand that. I said, this is my on my own. They're not asking me to do this, but I wanted you to know that an offer is coming tomorrow. So just to kind of ease your mind. And she was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like, I appreciate you just giving me a chance to breathe. And I was like, yeah, it's coming. I just wanted to let you know that we'll talk about the numbers later, but, in, but you are the chosen candidate and an offer is coming to be able to ease a candidate's mind like that. I don't think people fully understand what it does to a candidate's psyche when they are just waiting for an answer. So I just rather not take you through that. Right. You don't know the half of it. I, I tell and being a person that's been through this before hearing like, Oh, you're going to get off. You're going to offer but you never get anything in writing and get it like mm-hmm. what happens. So that's why I always tell them all the time, hey, let, let's just keep interviewing so we get something actually in writing and you get some equipment because things change. Like for me, I had the everything was verbal. Then they say, hey, got some kind of bad news for you. We got to pull that wreck because of the economy next year. We're going to try to rehire again in Q1. I mean, so it's like you're like up on the high and then you realize, dang, now mm-hmm. I got to start all over again. And mm-hmm. It'd be like that sometimes. But while you were talking about making offers, I figured we'd jump into one of the questions that I had for you because you're talking about mm-hmm. anxiety with black people. And I know I get anxious when I'm just waiting on an offer. Like, until I see it, it's probably just from the fact of being laid off and stuff before, but like, I get anxious of, yeah. when I'm waiting on those offers. Why do you think it's black people that we tend to negotiate or ask for so low of a salary? So this is this is perfect. This this question is perfect for the timing because I was literally on Instagram this morning re- watching, you know, one of those reels where the person is interviewing somebody just on the street and they go, oh, you're in so-and-so. How much do you make? And the person shares what they make. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there was a white lady interviewing a black man and he was talking about how he's a system admin and he she asked, how much do you make a year? And he said 93,000. And so... Now, my recruiter mind for someone who makes offers, I went, okay, if you're starting out, I can see 93,000. I can even see 
70 if you're just starting out. Right. If you got some years under you, that's when you go, okay, I'm, I'm hitting 125, 135, 150 and up. And so, um, he, so she asked if, if he was happy with his salary and he, he paused, he shook his head and he said, I'm grateful. And I went, Mm-mm. nope, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Because at my recruiter ear said, you are not grateful. You want more money. And so we don't, we don't ask for what we're worth because we are taught to be grateful for what we have. And I don't think that's fair. So in certain black communities, if you're on one side of a black community, if you make 80, you make good money. Like you have made it. And on the other side of the black community, if you ain't hitting 130, you ain't making nothing. Mm -hmm. So, So I think that we ask for a lot less money because we are playing catch up. We're not privy to a certain, a certain lifestyle until we have seen it. And lately tech has been the, the industry where we've seen a different type of lifestyle. What we are not paying attention to though, is we're not paying attention to the, the money that comes from utilities, manufacturing, oil and gas from, from a, a high level perspective, energy mm-hmm. from a high level perspective. And so tech right now is sexy. Everybody wants to be in, in tech right now. Again, not paying attention to the other industries that really pay you good money. Black folk, we are taught, we are taught that if we are not like very beginning to this, if we're not doctors and lawyers, we're not, it's not really a prestigious type of, of job or industry that you're in. Um, and for us is when you come from a city, if you work for the state, you got a good job. Like I'm from Jersey, specifically Camden. So if you work for the city or the, i.e. the county, you in a good job. If you work for the state, you're in a good job. And so we're not taught how to reach a little higher for a little bit more of a complicated role that would make what makes our, our skill set very niche. And so I just feel like we're taught a little later in life. We're not, the STEM programs are available now. The STEM programs weren't really, I didn't really know a lot about STEM when I was in school. So they're not, it's it's not a sexy thing to do, right? For me, when I grew up, it was, you play basketball, you play football, Mm -hmm. you were good, you were a good writer. Um, You could do math, yes, but they didn't also teach us where math could take you. And so if anything, it was, I want to go to college. I don't want to go to college. I want to go into a trade school. All of that is good. But the path to getting a really good salary and understanding where your money goes, I didn't really learn that. So I got to my thirties. So I feel like we're taught late. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. It's like, for me, I think I've witnessed money before. My uncle has a friend who's like a, I think he's a millionaire and he was, he had one of those high paying occupations for, was it Merrill Lynch or something like that? It was like years ago. He's mm-hmm. an Italian guy, but like I'm talking about, you know how we always talk about, they say something like what people have on designer, but then, you know, the people who are really rich and their designer is like dress clothes type of like really like $2,000 button down shirts and that you put on with your suits and like regular white shirt, like stuff like that. And um, I remember just uh, seeing him like give his escalades and stuff away. And I was like, okay. That's money. When you say, you know what, they not give me what I want for. I was gonna give me a new one and, and give my uncle a brand new Escalade, barely used. Like, and 
after undergrad, 2014, uh, I had a mentor at the time. He was working uh, with, I think, like DOD. He was retired from the Air Force, and he had some high-paying job on there. He was saying, hey, for your first job, you need to be asking for, I think, sixty-five dollars or $70,000. Now, I, I, I didn't really know what to, to be asking for. I just wanted to get a job. I didn't get that for my first job. But it was like you said, it's like you don't know what to ask for. And you really start mm-hmm. figuring out what to ask for once you, like you said, they're either late 20s, sometimes if you're lucky, early 20s, and you have the right network and right circle yeah. around you. And that's why it's important. I started one of my friends in my in my close circle who's young, way young, like 10 years my, my junior, but he's like doing really good in this space, this security. And um, he was telling me about the new offer he accepted. I was like really happy for him. And I just started thinking back to myself. I was like, this is what people mean when like you count like your closest people around you, what they're doing. Typically, you may start doing too, or everyone is going to be in a similar path of making like either a lot of money or a little money. You'll you'll mostly see like mm-hmm. a group of, I hate to say it, but like I don't, I want to say broke people. But let's say people that's just not making a lot of money, average people hanging around. Then you will have high achievers all being around mm-hmm. each other. It's rarely like you said middle ground where you just got these other people that's just around people. I think it's like the ends of the, the spectrum. And and that's one of the ways you figure out you're making money. Like we also see people who stay at companies too long. Most people who stay at companies too long are underpaid. The new person that comes in is making twenty, thirty thousand dollars more than you. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not and you can I guess correct me on this, because I remember this to be true from being at a company and you won actual bigger raise, but like do the HR they can only give you like X amount. To where a lot of times you got to leave and come back to get whatever money you want. Mm-hmm. I think you, I think you run into that too. It, it's like a lot of different mm-hmm. things, and we all. Happens. I'm from the south, so it's even worse in the south when you say about good jobs. I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana. People are typically nurses, firemen, or policemen. So if you're mm-hmm. a, a fireman or something like that, oh, you got a good job. I mean, like five days on, five days off, they really don't make that much money because they're always they got so much free time they work second jobs, but STEM. Cybersecurity, networking, <laughs> recruiting. What's that? You, mm-hmm. you, you don't see anything of that. You know, back home, if you're in Shreveport making $80,000, you got it. Are you interested in starting your career in the cloud? Well, if that's you, then I got some for you. Level Up in Tech is a comprehensive 24-week program guaranteed to help you land a high-paying role in the cloud. Some of the skills that they teach you in Level Up in Tech are server config and troubleshooting, AWS, Infrastructure as code, CI, CD, scripting, containerization, and more. Level Up in Tech has helped over 800 people start their career in the cloud. So if you're interested in the program, click the link in my bio, click under Tech Resources, and click on Start Your Cloud Career. Mm-hmm. You can have your car, a house, uh, you made it, but mm-hmm. anywhere else, 80,000 is. You might not. You might not be able to get an apartment in a decent area, right? So yeah, right. that's 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 the TED talk on that. I think I think that could be like its whole its own conversation one day, so we can really it break can. down the psychology of of us. Because I did a I did an episode on that a while back. I found an article, and it said it's like you know it's two things, right? I think two things also happen when it comes to I know because uh, black women uh, complain a lot about getting underpaid. So two things happen. I did. I read this article, and I can find a video for you that way you can see what I what I read it from. 
know what I'm saying? A lot of people, one time, sometimes the black women get underpaid because they're not negotiating right when it comes to their salary. So they're getting paid because they're not asking what they should get paid for. Mm-hmm. And two, sometimes they are just being offered lower than what their white contemporaries make. So mm-hmm. like, I, I believe two things can be true in that as well. And that's why you need a recruiter cousin to, to help you. I say, no, that's too low. <laughs> You're trying to ask for 105 and this role pay up to 185. We finna submit yeah. you for, you know, 155. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I've, I've openly said in my role now, I didn't negotiate my salary. I didn't feel like I had to. Now, knowing what I know now, what I have probably, but I'm still glad I didn't because when I was offered my role, my base offer without me negotiating was 38000 more than what I was making in healthcare. Add the sign-on bonus and stock option. When you add all of that together, it went to a good, maybe f- almost $50,000 more than what I was making. And my my salary now, since I've been promoted, salary's gone up and, and bonuses and everything, I've grossed a good more than sixty five to 70000 over what I was making in healthcare. And so- I didn't negotiate my salary because I didn't feel like I needed to because it was already life-changing as it was. And knowing what I know now, though, would I tell people to negotiate their salary anyway? Yes. If you negotiate your salary, though, the question is, do you have something to stand on for it to make sense? So like when you're negotiating your salary, or do you have a compete offer that you want this per- this company to beat? Are you taking a pay cut? Because, you know, in, in base and you want it to go up and sign on in a stock option. Um, you can't just say, I want more money because I want more money. It right. has to make sense. It's got to be valid. For the, and I, and I, don't, I don't think people fully understand how negotiating salaries work. It's if I offer you $150,000 in a base salary, but you want one seventy five. dollars but the one one fifty is technically a, sign, a salary increase for you. And there is no compete offer. There's no pay cut. There's no, you don't have any dependents or anything like that. It's really hard to justify going up in salary and being equitable within the team that you're about to go into. So, so I don't think people fully get what goes into, and I'm, and I may actually write a template on this, what goes into negotiating your salary and why it's important to have something to stand on. Like, you can't just say, oh, I want to make like everybody, I want to make a hundred thousand dollars in tech. Cool. Great. What do you have to stand on? What, what do you have to offer? What, why should we pay you that? What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? Correct. No, nah, I, I agree because as a person who, at this current company, I actually took a pay cut to get out that last role. I was able to successfully negotiate a sign-on and a comp buyout here because I was taking a pay cut and I said, I need this. And they saw that what I was making the last thing because they got to see documentation. Okay, you say you're going to get this bonus, you know, in two mm-hmm. months, show it to us. And so you're right. It has to be, it has to be justified. You got to say based on the market or what you got, what you've been seeing in the market, this is what I deserve. This is the value I believe I could bring to the team. I can help do X, Y, Z. Sometimes you got to big yourself up and then say, you know what? I guess you're right. And I, I will say a lot of times people are expecting you to negotiate, but like you said, negotiate in good faith, not just throwing yeah. some number out of the way. I hope it sticks. That's why I'm glad that more companies are putting a range on there. Cause a lot of people, like I tell people all the time, I say, you can't try to get the max range because they want you to have somewhere to grow. So you got to figure out what number 
it's going to be a minimum that you would stand on, like you said, that you would accept if they don't budge at all. So don't play yourself yeah. on that minimum. Like, don't give this wide range. Like, maybe stay within 15 Gs of a, of a range you want. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, we can work with it or we can't work with it. It's a... Uh, yeah, like I said, it's it's a it's a really fascinating question. I think that's the like everybody kind of, you know, in black community kind of taboo about money. I don't tell people what you make. Yeah, you see it all the time. I will. Part of that comes from trauma, though. That comes from trauma. That comes from and your own family too. Us not. Yeah, yes, it comes from trauma personally. It comes from trauma professionally. It comes from it in the community aspect of it. It's it's we already we we walk with this victim mentality if you come at me after saying that i understand why you may come at me but hear me out we walk with this victim mentality that i i deserve to make a certain amount because whatever right the victim in you says i was done wrong before and you're still doing me wrong because you're not giving me what i want when the people who come later in life it's trying to be fair. So I, I put up a post one day on LinkedIn and got some people chewed me out. Some people understood. I put up a post one day and I said, you didn't get the job. It's not because you're black. Could it be that you just didn't interview well? Like, could that actually be the thing? And so I had an influencer like come at me like, it's understood what you're saying, but how you said it was just wrong. And I'm like, but how else am I supposed to say it? Because the com- we have to be able to have that conversation. It's I've sat in on interviews where black folk just did not do well. I've sat in on interviews where white folk didn't do well. Hispanic people didn't do well. Like we like whoever what you look like, you just didn't do well. I've also sat in on interviews where you did amazing. And so it's sitting in on this side. It's, Y'all, we can't walk with this victim mentality of I deserve this because I said it right? and not being able to have some type of something to stand on. And so it's I want to be able to teach our community like, yeah, we do deserve it, but you have to give evidence of why you deserve it. And that may come from you taking a pay cut or you have a compete offer or you may be a single mom or a single dad. And you're the only person in your house that takes care of your house of however many of, is in your household. Like it's a, it's a lot that goes into it. And so I just want, I don't want us to continue to walking around with this victim mentality of we're done wrong. We already know that we done wrong. Yes, we are. We are done wrong. Yes, we know that. Okay. Can we overcome that by giving evidence as to why I deserve this? Does it mean that other pe- our counterparts are going to be made to give evidence. No, but we already know we got to do it. So I just, I just feel like yeah. at this point we already know what it is. So let, let's just, we're going to fight against it, but we're also going to adapt to it until we get into the spaces where we're the decision makers and we don't have to. Right. And so and that's where I'm like in that space. Yeah. And I said, that's like one of the answers I said to that thing that I asked in my story. I said, well, when we, become more like managers or hiring managers and own our own companies, we probably can help combat this thing. But like you said, just because you feel like that, like I felt like that in 2018, not because I was black, but I felt like I went through some interview processes and I just felt like they, I don't know. I got weird vibes from time when I met the people in person. Cause back then these were in-person interviews. So looking at mm-hmm. nothing but older white people, all like in what their fifties or sixties, I just, Sure. Like they wouldn't finna to hire me. They just bought me and they interviewed me. I, I feel like that sometimes. Can I prove that? No, because I know 
that interview went well. It went when once I did bad. These are just some things I've met. Or sometimes I've used to feel like this, that at certain times they didn't want to pay me what I wanted to be paid based on like they'll ask me for something and then, and then just go ghost. I felt like that. Do I say that uh, they just were you know being racist? I don't know. It was a lot of different things that I experienced through that that 2018 job search. I can't prove anything. I know I had mm-hmm. a company one time tell me, I believe they said some of my own signs I was the best fit, but they going somewhere else. That kind of made me upset too, because a person, I'm a person need a job. You tell me I'm the best fit, but you want to go with somebody go else. Somewhere else like, yeah. That pissed me off too. <laughs> so yeah. it, there are different things that we all go through. You just got to keep it trucking along and yeah, go with the company that believes in you like that that company that gives you that chance that that's most of the time what's what you need like uh that's right i got this video and i said sometimes the job you want is not the job you need right (laughs) that's right i remember that so and and since we're already on the salary uh topic i wanted to ask something well negotiations Mm -hmm. what's the most I want to say interesting thing you've maybe seen the candidate negotiate for, maybe. Shit. <laughs> Listen, I was going to say this before you asked, but I heard this candidate, and, I, and I'm glad you asked that. I could just spit it out. One time, I heard this candidate say, I said, what's your salary expectation? Now, I'm sure you saw the first interview I did on Texas New Black. So when I did that one, I said, someone asked for 400000 total comp. Since then, I had a candidate ask for at least 725 total comp. And I was like, at least. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, oh gosh. And so he was like, listen, he said straight up, he was like, listen, um, you know, I worked here before. I work for Google now. I want to come back here. And it makes no sense for me to um, come back, leave my job when I don't have to, and come back if I don't get at least a 15% increase. And I was like, okay. Like, I can't argue with that. Right. So, so now, now did he did not get hired in my, in one of the roles that I was recruiting for, but I'm not, and I'm not sure if he got hired back into another role that one of my colleagues is, is recruiting for. But when he said that number when people say certain numbers, when I heard 400,000 total comp, I was like, wow. Then when you hear 700,000, mm-hmm. it makes you think like, what am I doing? Like, what what am I doing in my own negotiating life <laughs> that I am not that I am not comfortable with saying I want two hundred thousand dollars base salary? Like, what are we doing? That's the point that I missed when you were talking and it came back to me about salaries is why about negotiating. It's because if you don't keep negotiating, getting higher salaries, you're going to be scared to ask what you really want. Yep. Absolutely. That's, that's what I want to touch on. So if you, mm-hmm. if, if you scared to ask for one of $80,000, worst thing they could say is no, mm-hmm. you'll never, you could be 15 years in and be, and be scared to say, Hey, I want at least, like you said, 400,000 comps. So I want, 275 base and I want this and bonus and this and that. You'll be scared to do it because you never asked for it. Or if you haven't seen That's the right. offers come around your way, like I just did the episode this week and I was talking about the the chick who makes uh pretty much like she made like a quarter meal in, in tech 
this past year. She's, uh, of course, overemployed. And, you know, that number restrains people because some people can't fathom it. I was like, mm-hmm. I said, it just depends. Like me being 10 years in now, <laughs> I get roles that hit me up all the time for money. I get, especially when you, if you move to finance, like you got to come and say, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll give you a base of 250K, probably more. Um, you'll probably come in like three days a week. But I was like, the money's out there. It just got to have the right type of skill set. I still tell people yes. to this day, credit commerce is probably like the biggest number I've seen just from base alone in my inbox. And they was like, yeah, you got to move to uh, but does Charlotte. That, but does that skill set come with a certain level or that job, does it come with a certain level of learning that you think people are not willing to do? Right. Yes. And here's here's why here's 100%. why I say that. Right. We we have all of these boot camps out here, no matter what the boot camp is, whenever no matter what the program is, mm-hmm. we have all of these boot camps out here that is like however however much they decide to charge. If it's not a lot, if it is a lot, regardless. If it's not a lot, people are going to invest in it because it's not a lot of money. But then on when you add it's not a lot of money which means a whole thousands of people are going to invest in this because it's not a lot of money and they're teaching you something where you can get, you can increase your salary. Yes. But you're also in competition with all of the people who also decided to invest in this. You then have, you then have programs that is in the middle of, in the middle of, um, a, a boot camp and just short of being an associate's degree where it's literally like right in there and they may charge a little bit more and it may take a little longer for you to learn, but it, it, you're developing a skill set that is always going to keep you marketable. And so for you, it's you've college or not me law school or not. There's a certain level of skill that we were able, we were willing to sit and learn for an extended period of time that was not self-paced, that made us like buckle down and actually do it and be held accountable for it versus someone who is in a program, whether self-paced or not, and they decide to take the discount and hopefully they can land in tech. I think that's the, for me, it's, it's, I'm back and forth and I'm, I'm up in the air with, are you willing to sit for a longer period of time to learn a niche skill set or do you want a quick fix? Right. I, I totally agree with that sentiment. I've, I've had that conversation a lot of times and we talk about how, What's that? What's that being brought us? Shout out to uh, Love Open Tech. Y'all probably see the logo here. Oh, yeah. I love him. Yeah. Um, We were talking about how people want to make a lot of money, but they're not willing to invest the money in themselves. Like Correct. And then, like, you just brought up a a commonality between us. You brought up school. You got a JD. Uh, I have a master's. And I I went back to get my master's after I already was, like, in in tech in general. But it was just something to do because I had nothing to do. But I was willing to go do all those projects and learn this and pay that money. So now it's like when you when we also talk about what do we have to negotiate with when they start checking all your accolades amongst people on the team and your years of experience, education, certifications, how well you interview, those are things that they factor in when they're gonna make that offer That's as right. well. So yep. like you said again, if you come in there just because you you did a program, but yet like they're giving you a shot. And you're trying to negotiate too much. It, it doesn't really make sense versus what you really know. Maybe shooting yourself mm-hmm. in the foot. But I, I definitely agree. Which like, is why I never talk about how much I make. 
I never talk about that because I never talk about, I talk about the increase that I got. Mm-hmm. It's very seldom that I will say what my number actually was because I don't want people to think that just because my, there was a big gap in how much my total comp is now that you can come into big tech and do the exact same thing because I did it. That's not true. Mm-hmm. It's it, people out here, their experience is their experience. If they have a unicorn experience, they have a unicorn experience. If they have a common experience, they have a common experience. It's I just hate for people to see all of us who are talking about it and then think in your first job in tech, if you make sixty-five to $70,000 a year, it's, well, I didn't get six figures. And I'm like, but you got a $20,000 increase. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, it's 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 beyond me. Yeah, yeah, we we talked about that like kind of the last episodes. I was like, there are people out here. We know like the median income in in the country might be like thirty, forty thousand. So people are trying to scoff at like making sixty five, seventy, eighty. I was like, let let's be honest here. Like, I, I want you guys to relax. And like you said, I just I'm very transparent with my audience. So the episode that's dropping tomorrow is like I said, what I talked about is money or choosing what you like to do versus making a lot of money. And I told him like how much I walked away from in that other role because I don't want you to know, like the money is not what makes me want to keep doing stuff in my career. I was like, that's it right. could it could serve as a motivator for a little while, but then what? Like I, I was talking about how if you're just chasing the money even early on, job hopping a lot, but not learn anything. How are you gonna have questions to to map to star and, and sell yourself and right. do interviews for to, for more money? You're not gonna be able to. You're gonna be job hopping to the same job and getting an increase like that, but you you're not gonna have anything to show that you actually completed in the in a time. It probably takes two to three years unless your job is like more project based and you were just brought in to work on a specific project. It takes a while to gain those skills and show the things that you've done. And and so that that's the type of stuff I'm talking about tomorrow because that's what the people need to know. It's like, of course, yeah, you can you can stay somewhere six months and go get some money. But then what happens when you plateau at the same skills and now the person who stayed at that same company probably two, three years and they did all this stuff. So now this next job, take them up here. That's right. And that's, that's, right. What, like, that's, what, like, that's something we're not seeing right now. That's right. Like you mentioned earlier, you talked about not going close to the max because you won't have room to grow. I tell I tell people that all the time. And it's not to undercut you. It's if you make the max and then next year you don't get a merit increase because you can't, because you are at the max of your level, unless you get a promotion, you will not make any more money, which is going to make you mad. So like, so for example, one of the most recent testimonials I got was this software engineer, he first software engineer role, he asked for my salary negotiation template. I sent it to him. He got company one offered him. They had a max of, I think the max salary range was up to 114. And I want to say they might've offered him very close to that, but it was a contract role. The second company offered him a $98,000 base with a $10,000 sign-on bonus. And it was a full-time role. So he used my salary negotiation template and with company two, he negotiated from 98K base, he negotiated up to $100,000, $100,400 in base with a $15,000 sign-on bonus. 
but the money, the, but the role is also full time. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're both very prestigious companies. And so I, when he was negotiating, I was telling him, you do know that the higher offer is not always the best offer. And he was like, no, I get that. Like, because you have to know where your money is. He was like, no, right. So he went with company two, which was a lower offer, but his sign, but his total comp was more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this uh, Y'all are getting a, a lot of gain right now because these are the type of things I like to bring on here. So people can, whether they're driving their car, they just listening, they can just understand us talk candid about some of the things that they are not aware of. Cause some of the people are still just trying to get into the industry or they're seeing a, right. a lot of different things out there that's telling them, Oh, you should do this and that and get the money. But this, your career, this, I want everybody to kind of just put this like in a, like in tunnel vision real quick. It's only been three years since the pandemic. It seems like it's been like six. It seems like it's been a, like a long time, but it's only been three years. Everyone's mm-hmm. really been trying to get a tech job. And so to you, that seems like you ain't did nothing in a long time, but it's only three years of your life. You mm-hmm. still got a long way to go. So if you don't get what you're getting, just put your head down, do the work, figure out what you don't know, talk to people that's in the roles you want to do, and you can get there. And and just sometimes some of you that's trying to get in, sometimes y'all just need to get off social media because you mad you don't have what somebody else has, but you don't know what they did to get that. Sure don't. I, I tell people, I got clients that want to break in and do this and that. I'm like, okay, well, what you been working on this weekend? Because y'all want these results that person A got. Like I was telling you about the the guy. It's like pretty much like my mentee. But now it's also a contemporary, 10 years younger than me. For like the first two years of the pandemic, every time I'm up late because I'm working on something, he working on something. I was like, you've seen all this stuff come to fruition now because y'all not willing to do all that. And some of y'all don't got no kids right. or family like I got. I'm doing everything while having two girls and having to please the lady and all this other stuff. Some of y'all is just y'all and y'all being lazy. Mm-hmm. And yes, I said y'all mm-hmm. being lazy. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. look, it, it is what it is. I want to ask you in the questions I have, since you came into recruiting with, with, a, with a different background, and I also may add, I think your transferable skills of the things that you did learn in law school helped you to become a phenomenal recruiter. What mm-hmm. would, what would be like some just essential skills you think a recruiter would need to actually succeed in their role? So, this may sound very like like very baseline uh baseline, but you have to have empathy. Like you have to be able to connect with your candidates. I, a lot of recruiters that I come across, no one specifically, but just in general, a lot of recruiters that I come across, this is a job for them. And so you may feel like you're ghosted or a recruiter just went on to the next person because for some people, this is a job. Mm-hmm. For some of us, this is a passion. And so like I do podcasts on the weekends or I, like after we record this, I'm going to jump on a call with somebody who just at this point, she has paid for every single person to talk to. And I'm like, girl, keep your money. We'll just jump on a call and, and we can and we can just go through questions. But um, in order for you to be in order for you to be a successful recruiter, one, you have to do your research. I think that is with any role you have to understand what goes into making an offer with a, within a certain industry and the differences between where you've worked before. So for me, that would be higher education and healthcare and legal. 
And then how are you, what's different from that in tech? So that's one thing. Another thing is I am learning from a lot of the senior recruiters who have been recruiters either longer than me or who have been in technical recruiting longer than me. And so part of that comes from me being very willing to be, to humble myself, to just learn. Because while I may think I'm the best recruiter there is, I also know that I am not, I don't know everything. So I'm very willing to sit classroom style and just listen to a recruiter, kind of how they run their desk and how they approach certain things. I've learned a lot from my own teammates about how to make offers that are very high offers that I wasn't used to. So they, I, I, I was taught how to actually do that. I was taught how to show up in offer calls. I was taught, and, and I'm still learning how to set certain expectations with my hiring leaders because um, there are certain things that you run, run across as it relates to certain hiring leaders and their personalities that you kind of have to set expectations with in the very beginning. I've been taught how to slow down because I actually move too fast. <laughs> I, I know that about myself. So I've like my I've made dire mistakes in my job because I move too quick. And so my manager was just like, slow down. And I was like, cool, you're right. Like, you ain't wrong. Um, I I I'm someone who I like to hear feedback whether it hurts my feelings or not. And so I like to be able to process that feedback so I can understand. And something I'm learning now, I can understand how to filter feedback, what's for me, understanding what's for me versus is you're projecting. Um, I've learned how to, and still learning how to, one of our directors said the other day, when, when we get feedback, you may not, it may not be feedback that you apply immediately. Some of the feedback is not immediate an immediate application to it, but it has everything to do with you taking for future reference. And when it's time to apply it, you'll know. And so I'm learning how to also not be so hard on myself. So that's another thing that another thing that I think a successful recruiter is, it's not being hard on yourself. And it's genuinely a matter of leaving yourself room to make mistakes and giving yourself grace in the process. Because I've made, I think uh, all of us as recruiters, we can say we made a ton of mistakes. And I know I've made a ton since I've been in technical recruiting. But I am grateful for the team that I've worked with, my sounding board at work to be able to teach me something different and to show me show me a way that is in love and in wanting me to be professionally successful and not be someone who is just good at the candidate experience. So I've learned how to take all feedback from all angles, which is a recruiter, which is what a recruiter needs, because it's easy for me to be an expert in the candidate experience or LinkedIn and being able to pull people from LinkedIn into the company. Like that's easy. That that's the back of my hand. It's a successful recruiter also has to be open to strengthen those weak areas that we're not normally used to and be able to, to humble ourselves and go to people who are stronger in the areas where we are weak. That's nice. And when you were talking about it's just a job for some people and then for everyone else, 
I want to get on this question I had to ask you, and I must found on it more. It was like, what's the bad part of recruiting that people don't typically talk about? Because, you know, typical our podcast, we're talking about like all the good things and the fun things. Yep, people mm-hmm. change their lives. But how does it feel when that candidate you really want the nab doesn't accept that offer? How, how does that feel? Um, so when, when I first got an offer that a candidate turned down, it felt like, Oh, how long is it going to take me to land to, for the hiring leader to choose somebody else? Have they already choose their number and chosen their number two person? So what it feels like, honestly, is at first it felt like a defeat. Mm -hmm. Now, if anything, if anything now for me, it feels like I understand. Like I, I just understand because I have to, but again, I work for a company that understands, like I have never met a bunch of people who just understand. (laughs) (laughs) And those people genuinely like, yep, I've been through that. Yep. I've gone through that too. And anything that I've had to overcome any challenge I've had to overcome I've been able, I have a sounding board at work that I can go to. That's like, yeah, girl, I feel you. And, and if they don't, they give me a different perspective and help me kind of see a difference in it. So when, when I've gotten a candidate that will turn down an offer, one of the first instincts I do is I go, this is a great offer. I'm not an engineer. This is amazing. On the other hand, I think they're engineers though. So they know for them what's a great offer and what's not. Mm-hmm. So at first it was a, def- a defeat, but now it comes across as more of a, you can see it coming. If you, if you pay attention, you can see when a candidate is going to, is going to turn it down. Really? What What are they, they just mm-hmm. not responding to you or. No, it's not that it's, if we already have their salary expectation and I know that the salary I'm about to offer ain't even touching their salary expectation. I understand that either I'm going to have to get some approvals and do some salary negotiations, or I just know that they're not going to, they're not going to accept the offer. And I'll actually tell my hiring leader up front. Like I actually did that the other day. I told my hiring leader like dog. Um, and honestly, that's how sometimes depending on the hiring leader, that's how I talk to them. I'll be like, all right, dog, listen, um, there are certain things. There are certain things that I can tell after either speaking to the candidate or reading the notes that, like I, I said the other day, hiring leader, this candidate, if you don't offer them this, he's not going to accept this offer. And so, and I, and I had a conversation with him and had to advocate for the candidate because, because also too, with depending on how you interview can in any company, honestly, can depend on what level they think you should go into mm-hmm. because you're now showcasing your skill set in the interview. And so I had to advocate, like, if you don't make this offer, this number to him, you're going to lose him. And I immediately knew that. And that could be anywhere between the difference in salary. It can be the difference in, um, in like, if they're going to make a salary increase with our offer, it's also going to depend on if that, that candidate has a compete offer. So if a candidate has a compete offer and it very much exceeds our offer, I always tell my hire leader, so you do know this compete offer is $30,000, $40,000 over us. They're not going to accept this. So it you can kind of pick up. Mm-hmm. You have to turn into that from recruiter to consultant 
turn into that consultant for your hire leader to understand this is what we're up against. And for someone who who looks at the market because I have to, then you're going to have to come up or you're just going to have to be okay with losing this candidate. And so I've said, are you okay with losing this candidate? If they say yes, I make the offer and we'll see what happens. If they say no, I say, all right, before I talk to the candidate, you need to come up. So what can we do? And we'll talk about it. Yeah. Cool, cool. I was going to ask you something funny. We just talked about single uh, mom and parents. Like, had somebody ever negotiated? It was like, all right, bet. Can y'all pay daycare? <laughs> Can y'all pay daycare costs or something? Like, um, no, I haven't heard anyone say specifically, like, can they pay daycare costs? But I have had candidates where, like, if their significant other is on disability mm-hmm. or if they are... Because essentially, if you're if you're the only person bringing in money, then I don't I don't mean to equate it as being a single parent, but it's you're a single income household. And so um, so I've had people where I've had to leverage a sign on bonus a little bit with the idea that this may be a single income household with both parents and then however many kids they have or, or conversations about like, if you have a, if you have a dependent in another way, if you're a caretaker, Mm -hmm. like I said, if you're a single mom, I try to factor all of that in whenever I need to go up in sign on bonus or stock option to understand that we do care. And in order for it to work and make sense, we may have to come up a little bit. Yeah. Hey, listen, I've said that before. I'm the only person that works. My my kids don't go to daycare. Their mom watches them. So one time a recruiter was like, yo, uh, so I don't care why you want to like look for another opportunity. But if they were to ask me, like, why would you say? I was like, well, shoot, inflation and I'm trying to take care of my family. <laughs> that was good enough for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they submitted mm-hmm. me. I just like, it, it, I don't know what you want me to tell you. It was like, I'm the only person that work. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody but that's how you know the company that, prioritizes you. Right, right. Now let's talk about some stuff. Right, we're all on LinkedIn. I just want to give you those, those clapping hands for your hundred k followers <laughs> on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, guys, she got a hundred k. Only got a, a measly like I got twenty hundred k. Y'all be killing That's it though, not man. Measly. The people say that like I asked somebody. They were they were talking to me in my um, my messages. I was like, I can't believe I'm talking to a celebrity. You got twenty thousand followers. I say, I'm just a, a regular person. Like people actually say that to me though. Sometimes like. I can't believe you like responding to me. I said I respond to everybody as long as you're not in here talking foolishness. I get that all the time. My messages, like if you're saying stupid stuff, I'm not gonna respond to you. Or sometimes people reach out to me and say, "Hey, uh, are you hiring? I need a job." I said, "What told you about I was hired?" I never said I was hired ever on this profile. (laughs) Or they're just rushing to ask me something about getting in security operations without even saying hi, and I'm like. Okay, uh, set up a consultation. Yeah, that's I've had to tell people that. Like I've had to put up posts that say, "Y'all." I understand y'all need a job, but y'all can at least say hi. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Greet That's me one of the things. Something. <laughs> the simple things I, I, I tell clients, whether it's going to, I tell them like when we're doing interviews, I'm like, hey, look, they might not reciprocate it, but if you want to start it off, let's start off like you was dating. And, uh, mm-hmm. Tell somebody, thank you for taking your time out to meet with me. My name is so-and-so, yada, yada, yada. Don't just get to yes. talking about yourself. Kind of just introduce yourself first and thank them for being there because everybody's busy. But I've That's noticed right. that too with a with an interviewer. My clients did like three times and said, you know, hey, how you doing? Da, da, da. The dude never said nothing back to him. So I was just like, 
I told the person that referred him, because I used to work with that same person that interviewed my client. I was like, y'all need somebody else interviewing people. This dude's skills, uh, interviewing skills are horrible. And he couldn't tell mm-hmm. my client was nervous the whole time doing an interview. I was like, not once mm-hmm. tried to ease him down. Like, I was nervous in my first loop interview with y'all last year. And the interviewer, like, calmed me down. He was like, it's cool. I know you're nervous. And he eased me in. And after that, I was good through the loop. And so that's why I was like, when you experience somebody that actually wants to interview you and not just want to ask you drill-based questions they Google, you'll have a better experience. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask, like, what are what are job seekers getting wrong? Like, I do understand it is a tough market. I understand mm-hmm. that. But, but what are they getting wrong? Why is so, like, I had somebody connected with me, um, my friend connected me, like, a, a young lady she's mentoring. And one of the first things she was talking about in her resume, when I said, um, I looked at her resume, I said, you know, your resume is pretty, it's aesthetically pleasing, but it's doing too much. It's all over the place. It's, it's, it's not giving what you need to give. And her first reply back was like, oh, well, I'll work on it being more ATS friendly. And I was like, I don't know where people, like, kind of, get that from because the ATS is kind of just used to keep up with us applying to the jobs. But mm-hmm. it's like, no, that's not the end all be all. If I say your resume is doing too much because me, a human, looked at it and seen it's doing too much and it's not showing me much. <laughs> and that's what people are one thing they're not getting in. They're complaining, I applied to a thousand jobs and nobody said nothing. So one part we know is your resumes if you applied to a thousand jobs. The other part may be, hey, your interview skills are bad. Mm-hmm. You might just not be in <laughs> and then no matter what you look like, dog. Right. Yes. And I also tell people sometimes too, if you are applying to that many jobs, that means you're not applying to most of the same type of job. Your skill set may not fit all those roles you're applying to. They probably just interviewing you just to interview you, but it's like your skill set don't fit no thousand jobs. Right. Especially for y'all that's just trying to get yourself like, how do you expect to be successful at this job search without being intentional with your job search? I think a lot of people are missing that. Yeah. So I wrote down four things. I wrote down strategy mm-hmm. and organization and then interviewing, skill set and expectation. So strategy and organization for me go hand in hand. Strategy says, oh, and I would say my fifth one is networking. Strategy and organization for me are pivotal because people think that an effective way to job search is to mass apply everywhere where your arm stretches. And I'd be like, y'all, listen, I don't think y'all fully understand. Like, you're just literally just throwing applications out there and you don't even remember where you applied. So one of the things that a recruiter posted one day on LinkedIn and he got like mixed comments around this, but he's pretty much said it is not a good look when I, as as a recruiter reach out to you for an interview and you don't remember which company I'm a part of. I agree. Certain people said you're right. Certain people say give them a break because they probably applied to all kinds of people, all kinds of places. I'm on the, I'm in the middle. He is right. But I've also, been in situations where I've contacted people and they don't remember that I'm with my company and I give them grace because the job market is what it is. It's the job market. So I understand. So strategy and organization tells me that 
you mass applying and you not landing anywhere, which means you don't have a plan to how you're applying, which is which probably means you're going to result in frustration. You're going to result in frustration anyway, but you're going to result faster in frustration when you don't have a plan, strategy, and you're not organized. So a strategy for me means, and I actually recently had someone do exactly what I did, to exactly what I said. She applied to 12 jobs. She got one interview and got that offer. So she didn't mass apply. So what I did, what I said to people was, I said, pick the industry that you want to move, you want to work with. So let's say, for example, that is tech. Mm-hmm. So since we're both in tech, let's say that's tech. So let's take all of the big companies that are under tech, i.e. the parent companies. So let's take all of the fang companies. You have your Microsofts, your Googles, your Amazons, Apple, Intel, Meta, Samsung, so on and so forth. All of those big major tech companies that everybody uses. You take those, you take your skill set and you go to each of those parent companies and you determine if that if your skill set matches some of the jobs that they want to hire for. If yes, apply to those jobs. You then go by go by each parent company and you find their child companies to then understand if those child companies have a separate applicant tracking system or a separate application system where mm-hmm. you can apply to those jobs separately and you apply to those jobs as well. You go to, you then, after that, you're at the child company, you then figure out if that child company has what I call a cousin company. So any company that is attached to the child company or is in partnership with that child company and you'll, you'll apply to those companies, you'll start to notice that certain companies are going to start popping up. You'll start getting into the nonprofits and the tech startups that you don't know exist. The question you should ask yourself at that point is, if I don't know this exists, I wonder however however many people don't know this exists. It then narrows down narrows down your competition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You'll then start get getting to a place where not only is your competition narrowed, but at this point, since you've reached so far down from the top to the bottom of all of these companies you've applied to, is it that you remember where you applied, so you're organized? You put that on the spreadsheet, you made note or do whatever you had to do. Can you get multiple interviews and then multiple offers based on this one line? You only chose Amazon, for example, and you went Amazon all the way down to the tech startup that might be in association with it. Can you get interviews or offers that is in relation to all of the companies you apply to and leverage all of the offers to get the best offer you want to you want to make at a specific company. You go to the next fame company and then next fame company, you do the exact same thing. So then that means you are strategic and you are organized. The next thing is the interviewing part that you mentioned. Can you interview for real? Or do you think you can just interview? And have you really gotten true feedback from someone who has either been an interviewer, who has been a hiring leader, or someone in HR. It can't be just your friend who think, oh, you did a good job, girl. No, it can't be your mom. Oh, you did a good job. Even if your mom is in HR, you need someone who is non-biased. So it's, can you actually sit in front of someone, pay, invest, pay someone, to mock interview you so you can get the nitty gritty on how interviews work 
and sit with someone who has experience in multiple industries so they can tell you how to prepare. The next thing is your skill set. Going back to your strategy. Do you have the skill set that says you have been set apart from everybody? Tech sales. And I start with that because everybody is wanting to get into tech sales, which I think is great. Tech sales, though, when everybody wants to get into it, is it has it has turned into not so of a unique niche skill set because now everybody's trying to get that skill set at the same time. You then go into like something you do or is even something that I do. Something that I do is not necessarily a niche skill set anymore because a whole bunch of people are tech recruiters. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that it's investing in programs that is going to have you set yourself up to always be marketable. The fourth thing is the expectation. I think all of us have this unrealistic expectation of I've been looking for a job for three months and nothing is sticking. And I always tell people, I don't mean to like discount how you feel, sis, but try four years and then we can talk. You've been looking for three months in a market that is not friendly to job seekers right now, where I'm talking to people who've been looking for over a year and you crying about three months. Now, Mm -hmm. again, it's not to discount how you feel because feel how you feel. But we got to find a silver lining in it somewhere. And the expectation, while it's great to have an expectation, the expectation has to be leveled with the skill set that you have, the jobs that you're seeking, the industry that you're in, and then you're now competing with millions of people. So that expectation has to shift a little bit. The last thing I will say on this is networking. People wait until they need a job to start networking. And I don't understand that. Like people wait, people wait until they are at this point, like they've gotten so comfortable with where they are. It's almost as if they have forgotten what it felt like to be a candidate, which is why I always tell people, I will never forget what it feels like to be a candidate. So you, even if I don't need a job right now, I am always networking. I am always staying ahead of whatever I need to be. I'm always helping people because if I'm ever in a position where I need help, I will hope people move heaven and earth to help me like I've done for others. So it's all of those things for me goes into what job seekers may be doing right and or wrong or indifferent to, to set themselves up for, for success. And out of all five of those things, if none of those things work, I have to attribute it not working to the job market itself because there is, there is a lot of people on the job market. So some of it just may not be your fault. Yeah. And I think there's some other things that I've seen being a a tribute to this as well. Now, earlier I was talking about the pandemic, how it's been three years since then. Everybody's wanting to get into tech. There was a lot of overhiring. Then most of the jobs were remote. Now they're requiring you to kind of be in some of these bigger cities again, to have a better chance at landing a role. So now the people who are already struggling from the cities that are small, don't have a big tech presence or whatever job they're trying to get, they're really feeling it. Then I like to touch on the networking portion. I, I have people all the time, I apply all this, I say, but you know, who have you talked to? Who have you reached out to? Have you been able to make any connections at the company that you really want to work at? Have you found anybody there? I applied to a, f- a fame company recently and 
instead of me initially just saying going like I found a couple people that like work around the team that I applied to based on my skill set, I said, Oh, this is a perfect fit. And I found a guy and I didn't say, Hey, I applied. You can can you pull it for me? No, I just said, Hey, what's going on, man? How you know, how do you like working at <laughs> I'm just saying, how you like working at Netflix? <laughs> I just asked him. And we just started having a conversation or whatever. And then that's like later on down the conversation, like, yeah, you know, I actually applied to, you know, such and such job or whatever. And then we just went from there. And then I found another person. I think that was a manager of like the the team that's closely related to that team. And he was like, you know, I'm going to send your, your stuff over. It's just, it's like simple stuff. It may take some time. Like when I, uh, when I followed and connected all these people, they didn't accept me the same day. So I just always just check back and see what they did. I can't remember if I sent you that, that director's, screenshot from what he sent me from last year about, you know, me as a candidate. But initially how I found him last year was like, hmm, I'm really interested in this role. Let me see what team this is a part of at the company. And that's how I found him. That's how we got to talk before I even interviewed. So it, it is like, I tell people like my strategies are super simple. They might not be like quick, but eventually if they do add you back and then you get to talk to them now, if you had at least a decent experience with them or you talk to them every couple of months, it just, you know, if they remember you, that's a good thing. Like you're not gonna get you're not gonna get the right a yes on everything. Maybe that role wasn't for you, but the fact that someone say, "Well, I remember talking to him last year. He was he was pretty cool." And yeah, by, by that stretch, I told everybody, I, said, "I was rusty then." <laughs> that's why I was so nervous. I was rusty. I had been in a year in like a non technical gig, and so I, I was right. feeling it in those interviews for real. And that's the other thing too. My job is to try to help you get enough interviews back to back so we can build that skill set up. Because even one of my clients like, mm-hmm. yo, I, he said, I learned a lot from you. I realized you were right. Like, if I keep interviewing, it's going to get better. Because the first couple of interviews they did, they was kind of rocky. But you got to get used to it. It's like going to the gym. If you've been out the gym yeah. by two years, you're not going to hit 225 on bench. Sure ain't. Got to build back up. <laughs> right. You might start <laughs> on the bar. You may be able to do like, you know, uh, 185 maybe once or twice. But you're not going to be what you were. And that's all mm-hmm. it is. That's why I tell people, actually... A cheat code is to just always interview because you're going to know what the market is looking for. You can write those skills down. You can learn them. And that way you'll be ready. You won't be blindsided when you see the trends start coming and you haven't worked on anything. And that's one of the other things I was talking about, too, on this episode. It's like you got to keep working like it. You can just come to work and just be in that same spot. But if you want to achieve and do good things in your career, then you got to keep on learning stuff. That's right. Now, as a recruiter, you know, earlier I was telling you about the resume a, uh, ATS thing. I've seen multiple recruiters say this, and I just want to see what you're going to say. Would you say like nine out of ten, like most of these resumes are bad? Um, no, I wouldn't say nine times out of ten. I would say that they're not bad. People, I think people are just using fancy templates to catch the eye of the recruiter because it's like, ooh, this is pretty. Let me look at that, and while it may very well be pretty, the the uh, resume itself may not be compatible to the applicant tracking system. So simple is the best way to go because, like, you know how everybody gets extremely irritated when you when you hear, "Okay, now that you uploaded your resume, manually put put your experience mm-hmm. in." And I used to hate it too. Now I understand why the system asks you that because if the system can't read your resume, if I can look at what you manually input, then 
I know if you meet the minimum qualifications and I don't have to reach out to you to mm-hmm. say your resume wasn't taken by the system. Can you send it again? Like it slows me down. So in order for me, in order for me to be able to, to decide whether you meet the minimum qualifications, I have to be able to read it. And so there are many times when resume words would be all over the place and I'm like, oof. and then I'll go to what they manually input and I'll go, Oh, they do meet it. Okay. I can read this. So mm-hmm. while it's annoying, it saves you on the front end to be able to put it in. Um, the content of the resumes depend. So I am open about how, like how long a resume is. And I know some people will say, Oh, one page. Don't listen to people who say one page. I don't, yeah. I don't understand it. Uh, you can very well have a two page resume and be fine. Minus three. Um, so, so there are some people who will say one page, but I've also seen CVs. That's a bunch of pages. Right. And so part of that right has there. to do. Yeah. And part of that has to do with your culture too. If you come from another country, most of the time, those CVs are very long. And so I've seen 20 page CVs before and they're extremely, you know, extremely long. And I've seen resumes that two and three pages and everything is good. So uh, it just kind of depends on what you say, like how you organize your resume and then what you say, because if you don't, if you don't have something specific that a hiring leader is looking for on a resume, but you say that you have that skill, I don't know if you have that skill because it's not here. Right. Right. It's hard when you want us to read between the lines, but I can't read something that's not there. And on a resume, you can't read in between the lines. Like if you if it's not there, you don't have the skill. So I've had people like like one of the questions that you and I, one of the topics that you and I talked about, we haven't gotten to it yet, but I'll bring it up now. We talked about before this, before we we set a date to do this recording, you said that we both have different opinions on applying to a role you don't meet 100% of the minimum qualifications for. And for me, I am not the recruiter who is going to tell you, oh, apply anyway. Not doing that. Now, if you apply, does it mean you can still get hired? Of course. We I've seen many people who get hired into a role that they don't meet 100% of the qualifications for and they're still hired. For me, it's do you meet 100% of the basic minimum qualifications, not the preferred. The preferred, you don't have to meet all of those, but the basic minimum qualifications, do you meet all those? And the reason for me me saying I wouldn't advise you to apply, it's not that you still can't get hired. It's It goes to the legal ramifications of what if someone decides to sue a company, which has happened, sue a company because they meet all minimum qualifications, but the person you hired does not meet all the minimum qualifications. How do you, for everybody who touched that requisition, how do you explain meeting, hiring someone who is underqualified based on what's written in that job description over someone who is not, who is overqualified or who is qualified? The second point to that is, I want to save you from the level of rejection that you will possibly going to get if you don't meet the minimum qualifications. Like apply anyway, sure. But if you get rejected, you know you don't meet it. So in my mind, it's you already know. So if you apply anyway, you if you get rejected, don't be surprised. And the reason why I say these things is because I've had candidates 
that I will put up a job that I've just posted on our career site. And we have, you already, you've been through our loop. So you've been through our applicant our applicant tracking system, and it'll ask you, do you have, do you have, and you have to answer yes. If you answer no, you're admitting that you don't meet the minimum qualifications. So if you answer yes, it is still on the, the job of the recruiter to make sure that on your resume, the skill is there. And so there have been times where I have asked candidates, do you have this skill set? And on LinkedIn, they'll tell me no. And then I'll say, but you answered yes to this question. And they'll go, oh, no, I don't have it. <laughs> and I go like, what? what? <laughs> so so it's it, it's blatant. for me, it's blatantly obvious that if you don't meet a minimum qualification and if you don't get hired or if you get rejected, you can't be surprised that you've been rejected. Now, again, doesn't mean you can't apply. It just means don't be surprised if you get rejected. No, I agree. No, I'm actually with you on the minimum part. I just was like, I was, was just saying as far as like not 100% of everything because some of the stuff I think is bonkers that I see on job descriptions because some of that stuff is two and three roles or based on the level that they're hiring for, like the amount of experience they want you to have, there's no way some of those people can know some of the things in the job description for some of those things. And that's why I say just apply anyway because it's like there's no way possible they expect you to know some of that stuff if you only got two two years in the game. Like, they didn't, yeah. the hiring manager didn't write their job description. Some AI or some wrote it, like just apply. <laughs> so that's kind of like where I'm at yeah. on it. But I was like, when I, like I'll, my clients will, will give me a job and I'll look at it, I was like, uh, you know, your resume, the one that I did for you doesn't really resonate with this. Like, you know, so whatever you're working on, so we can, you can look like you know how to do all this stuff. But I was like, because right now your thing is geared towards this. I don't know if they're going to select yeah. you for this. And I'm just honest with them yeah. right there because based on, on what I see, and I tell people that all the time, and they're getting mad like they're they're getting denied or or whatever's happening. I was like, well, this is what you kind of have on your resume, or then, right. then we'll get, and we, then we'll start getting into okay, bro, right. learn these skills. I got one client, and this is like, I know where he's at. I think he's just in a crossroads in his career. Like every other day, he's asking me about something new, and I'm just like, listen, Lindo, like we got to focus on this one, like these two things. Let's just master these first. Like stop looking at yeah. what else. You already doing this. Just learn these things. That's going to be easier for you to learn, so we can put you in a different position. I was like, "Problem." It's like a. That's right. If I was like, I think you were talking about poetry. The other thing that I love is boxing. Uh, that's what I'm going to ask you too, since you're from Jersey. Are you a Shakur Stevenson fan? I've 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 loosely heard his name, uh, but I'm not. Boxing is something I do when I'm working out. Box basketball is my sport. Okay. Like I'm a like if you like Wani Wagner. He's like the hometown hero for for basketball for Camden, but then his son DJ, um, he's up and coming. He's with Kentucky right okay. now, so yeah. You, so basketball you. is me. Got you. What's I mean? It's with any sport, right? If you want to start out playing ball, the first thing they teach you, you're not coming in there and dunking. Like the sure. your first thing might be just dribbling, and they probably gonna say, "Well, we want to make sure you know how to dribble well, like decent to well." It might not even be that. Stuff. It may be footwork. It yeah. may be like. Sliding across the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Seriously, like, like if we if we talking about boxing, like everybody want to do all the offense. Like, hey, no, look, I'm just gonna show you how to throw this one, this one two, and you're yep. gonna be really good That's at your it. jab. It's it's the same thing. Like, you want to learn all this. Like, let's get really good at the the, the basics and foundations first. That's why I've been. That's I made it. a post a while back telling people like, listen, I've been seeing a trend that's been harder for some of us for you to get into cyber. And like you said, if you're not getting a program. 
that might be a little bit more costly, but it's teaching you some specific stuff. You might have a harder time because you just don't have mm-hmm. the resources at your disposal to learn from people in the field, to learn all these different things you need to know to kill it on the, on the interview process because you don't know what you don't know, like bottom line. Mm-hmm. So I told mm-hmm. people, hey, it's harder. So you know what? You may have to do a feeder role. You may have to do some type of role like that's an IT that's going to give you some type of foundational skill set with some yeah. cybersecurity principles and then you can go ahead and pivot over. Yes. Because I'm telling people it's, it's not it's not as entry level friendly. Some are. You have some rare jobs that's saying zero to two experience. You got some rare jobs. You got some really good companies out there that's rare. But I, I tell people all the time is like a lot of companies, their teams are a little bit leaner now. They don't even have the resources to really, I was like, training? What's training? They don't really have a lot of time to even train people anymore because they're so busy. And that's one mm-hmm. of the, the harder things that people run into. And one of the one of the companies I actually want to start was a, a company that specifically kind of like a professional services company. Like with some of my friends, all of us have been on like IR, SecOps, forensics, where you know, companies don't have time to train people. Hey, give them to us. We'll train them for three months and then they should be able to hit the ground running at your company. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's a lot of the gaps that I see. In yeah. Everything. I was going to ask you this. How has the pandemic affected recruiting? Has it been easier, harder? I know, like I said, remember earlier, you could do much more because like, hey, everything is remote. But now, with like you said, some of them saying, well, you need to be in Redmond or you need to stay in Dallas or New York mm-hmm. or Atlanta. Now it's stuff being mm-hmm. a little bit more different. How has that been uh, for for recruiting? Um, I think it's I think it's in the middle for me. I'm neutral to that because the pandemic taught us that you can do your job from your bed. So, and it also taught us that we actually may be a little bit more um, proactive in getting our work done because we're in the comfort of our own homes. I think it's, I don't think it's the recruiting. I think it's the recruiting and the job seeker expectation that has made it hard. It's now people want to be fully remote, rightfully so, because fully remote says you save more money. On the other hand, it's if, uh, if companies now are becoming more of exercising more of the hybrid model, then it's, we want you in an office at least three days or at least two days. And most people feel like I don't need to be in the office. I can do my job from home. Why do I have to come here? Like what's, are you, all I'm doing is changing the location, but I still have my computer. So why can't we just do it here? Um, And I think that it's made it harder because most people, most people's expectation of working hundred percent work from home have the expectation without the skill set to do so. So it's that they want to work 100% work from home, again, rightfully so. But if you don't have experience in an industry or in a position and you have competition and that competition does not want to work or does not want to come into the office and you're willing to come to the office, you may be chosen over the person who is willing, who is not willing to come to the office. And it's it's almost like, Everybody wants their cake and eat it too. Everybody want to make $100,000. Everybody wants to work from home. Everybody works wants work-life flexibility. All of those things are very needed for all of us to be successful. But there has to be a give somewhere to me and a job seeker. And that give is, if the office is 15, 20 minutes away from your house and you can get there without no problem, 
go to the office. If the office is 45 minutes to an hour, all right, we talking about something. We talking about like, that's a little bit of a way to do back and forth every single day when you got a family, you in traffic, like that. I can understand that. For me, it's, it's the compromise on both ends. It's the compromise on getting our, our companies as a whole in general and getting companies to have to be a little bit more flexible and letting people work from home. But then job seekers understanding that if they absolutely want you to come into the office one to two days out of the week, do that. If they want you to come into the office five days out of the week and you can get to the office with no problem and you don't have no experience, I don't think you're at liberty to argue I absolutely want to work from home and I'm not compromising that. Dog, you don't got no skill set in this particular area and they're willing to give you a shot at it. Boom. So I do think like at some point you got to go with it until you get the skill set to where you can call the shots and you say either you you hire me from where I am or I'm going to just go to the next company. I agree. And here's, I think, why I asked you about the daycare, right? I had the liberty for working for J.P. Morgan uh, about like six months last year. And one thing that I did notice that they had that was cool about their campus out here in Plano is they had a daycare. So I see people, it's like a really nice daycare. They're, they're bringing their kids there. And so they're right there. Cause I think about sometimes you have like single mothers or we just say single parents who don't have, you know, it's a, it's a blessing for them to be remote because the kids stay at home with them. They don't have to pay that extra money for daycare. Now, sometimes mm-hmm. if it goes with the hybrid, it's like, okay, what do I do with my child? Am I able to bring them here? Do we have, so I think that's like one of those things, like one of those things that come into play with people that have kids like before they're actually school aged because Mm-hmm. For some people who don't have kids, you could be paying apartment rent for your child to be in daycare per month. <laughs> yeah. So if you can save that, please believe it. I understand why you would want to save it. I definitely understand that. Yeah. Now, here's like to, to wrap it up. I want to ask because I, I was brilliant. I almost thought we was having uh, at a Sunday service when you had your notes out <laughs> with the five questions by strategy organization. Uh, you probably brought this out too, but what are what are three or five things that you would like to leave our listeners and our and our audience with from this conversation or just about anything in life in general? Yeah. So I wanna I wanna start with one of the questions that you didn't ask me that's on here, but in part of that is because we our conversation just didn't allude to it. Um and or and or I jumped over it. You asked on here you put how did recruiter cousin become about, like the yeah. name itself. And one of the things, one of the things I always told myself was I wanted a big following on social media. It had nothing to do with the amount of people following me, but everything to do with the partnerships that come with the people who follow you. And it's not, and it's not a matter of you just taking any old partnership either. It's you, whatever company you decide to take the partnership with, do you believe in the product? itself. Mm-hmm. Do, if, if, it, if it were me, would I use or invest in this particular product? If yes, then you go on with the partnership. One of the things that Recruiter Cousin has done for me is I've been able, like I said before, I've been able to marry my motivational speaking and spoken word with my job and being able to motivate job seekers and all of those, all of that. What, what Recruiter Cousin, how Recruiter Cousin was birthed was out of a need of, I am a recruiter. Yes. 
but I also want you to feel like family when you're talking to me. So cousin, I want like, first thing, the easiest thing for us to do when we want to call each other family is either sis, bro, or cuz. So I chose cousin because cousin makes us close enough and far enough to where if you need anything from me, you can know, you know, you can go to your cousin. Right. And so that's where recruiter cousin came along. I want people to be able, first thing I would leave you with is be able to, to make a name for yourself. It could be your first name. don't have to be a brand, but I mean, who you are is a brand. So one thing I would say is you should be so good at what you do that your name enters a room before you do. I say that all the time. My name should recruiter cousin or Shanae, whichever one you decide should enter the room before me. If I'm talked about in rooms and somebody says Shanae or recruiter cousin, they know exactly who you're talking about. And so that's the first thing. And, or if I, if I help so many different people and I recommend if they, for whatever reason, at some point get a job as like a CEO or senior VP or wherever, and they know that when they needed a job, Shanae or recruiter cousin helped them get a job. And if I subsequently sent Henry, someone who is now a CVP in, let's say JP Morgan Chase for sake of argument. If you're a senior, if you're a senior VP in JP Morgan Chase and I helped you get a job at some point. And you go, oh, you came from Shanae? Oh, you good. Let me, let me interview you. That's the kind of reputation. Same thing with Danita. Same thing with the person that you, you talked about. That's the kind of reputation that I want. I want people to be able to equate my name and my legacy with excellence and delivery and no nonsense. So all three of those things mean something to me. No nonsense specifically, <laughs> because I am a person who demands a certain level of respect to the CEO, to the janitor. And I mean that because I do not talk to titles. I talk to people. So I want people to have that. That's number one. Number two, I want you to walk away with understanding that grace is important. You have to extend grace to yourself. That's something that I learn every single day. I understand that I, I'm not perfect. I work on my clarity a lot when I'm speaking. I work on my explanations. I work on my being my my level of concise because I know when I answer questions I can my answers can be long so sometimes I'll listen to how long I've been speaking and try to narrow it down the next time so it's being able to give yourself grace and and giving yourself room to make mistakes and then growing and so that's the second thing and I was the last thing I would probably say is knowing your level of confidence is going to help you Climb over the wall that you feel like you're stuck in front of. That level of confidence for me didn't come until years and years later. I've, this this level of confidence I've worked on for years. So it's being able to exercise a level of confidence that is so contagious that you don't have no room but to believe in yourself. So I need people to understand that, especially Black people. Because we have a level of confidence that while it is attractive and it is and it's engaging, there's a level of confidence that I want us to reach that when we walk into a room, we command the attention of that room. And if you are intimidated by that, that is an insecurity that you have to nurse, dog. So I I am 100 percent 
like a number one believer in that. And I want people to carry confidence, your name, and grace. Nice, nice. She listen, she she's blessed y'all. She's blessed me. She showed me stuff through this whole conversation. And the reason why I didn't get a chance to ask some of the questions, like we were just going and flowing and and so I was trying not mm-hmm. to interject all the different questions and ask like the different <laughs> things. So it's just like because I'm looking, I was like, dang, we had two. Like we had it my way. Well, the kids are quiet. I don't know what they're doing. But I know sometimes <laughs> they've been in there with their mom and she's like, Are you done yet? I've been in here with them for, for two hours and or whatever. So that's why I was like, I was kept on looking at the time. I was like, I don't want to hold her all day. Cause me, I can pot. Look, if I had a three, four hour yeah. pot, I, I'll let it go. But uh, I also want to be mindful of it, it being Sunday and you want to be with your fam and, and doing everything like that. But I know I, I really appreciate you for, for stopping through. I know they're going to appreciate it. Can you also tell the, the listeners and the audience how they can, you know, find you on social media? Yeah, sure. So you can go on LinkedIn, type in C H E N A E. Last name is Urquhart, E-R-K-E-R-D. If you put those two names together, only I'm going to pop up because my mom gave me a name that can't nobody spell. And my husband gave me, gave me a name can't nobody say or spell. So those two names are really unique. So here we are. And then you can find me on uh, Instagram, TikTok, and and um. I don't know if y'all use fan base, but I use fan base, um, fan base at recruiter cousin. So all of those are at recruiter cousin and then YouTube at recruiter cousin consulting. Okay, cool. When you start saying CH, I start thinking about, they call me I'm so goofy, man. But no, it's been another episode of textual talk, man. I appreciate y'all for rocking with us. And like I always say, let's stay textual. We out until next time. Peace. Y'all have a good one.